Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening. We'll kind of jump in. Sorry, I was uh, chit-chatting and laughing over there. Uh, uh, Tonight we get into a little bit of what we're going to call David's wandering years. Just out of curiosity, uh, some of you guys have been straight and narrow your whole life. You've been, you know, you were good all the way through. Some of you have got stories that you can tell or stories you don't want to tell your kids. Uh, Just curious, if you had a year in your life, and please go further than five years. If it's this year, just don't don't admit it. Uh, If you had a year of your life, admit it to somebody besides the class. If you had a year of your life that you could pick out and like, whoo, yeah, that was a, that was a rough one. Uh, in terms of you kind of wandering and running and doing things you know you shouldn't have done. Anybody had a year, like, whether it's literally, my, you know, you're 18, 16, 20, or it could be 19, whatever it is, or 2000, whatever it is. Anybody had a year, you know exactly what year it was. You know how old you were. And that was a year when you just became a full-fledged idiot for one reason or another. Anybody got one of those? Come on, we got to have, what year was it? Or, you can, or a decade? You got about 10 years of that. All right, pick one. You got one? Just let everybody know. I got about 10. Anybody got one? Okay, what's yours? When I was 24. 24. All right, 24. Anybody else got one? Last year, okay. Anybody's got a year where you were just, just wandering, okay? What about looking at it from a different perspective? Anybody had have a year? That you look back on, and maybe it's not necessarily, you know, a, a sin type issue and all that. Maybe it's just like that year was like I was living in a fog. Uh, for me, one of my years would have been the year my daughter was born, 2003. We had just crazy world where I had injured my back, and so I'm never sleeping at night. Chronic back pain, trying to get healed up. Our daughter's being born. My wife gets diagnosed with cancer. It was just like, are you kidding me? For me... That year's a fog. Like, I don't even remember it. Anybody got a year that for you is the year of the fog? When you look back, it's that year. That you, you would choose if you got a chance, choice. Even though you learn good things from it, you'd prefer never to go through that again. Anybody got one of those? Last year? 2014. Okay. Anybody else got one? Anybody else got a year you can look back? Who else got one? 2012. Okay. Anybody else have one? 12 and 13. Okay, you're going for two. All right. Anybody else? Tell you what, for for David, we're going to dive into his story tonight. David's going to have several years that he could choose from. Uh, I think these three that we're going to look at are going to be three of those years. Uh, Definitely the whole year with Uriah and Bathsheba has got to be up there. Definitely the year coming up with Absalom, his son, is going to be up there. But these years are the years of wandering. Uh, they are years of upheaval, uh, years are on the move. Okay, so let's talk about where we ended last week, chapter 20. And, uh, and we'll just kind of rocket fire through this. Tonight, again, we get a lot of content we're going to cover. It's good stuff. It's great. Just the great story of David. And, you know, the thing that I keep talking about is when we do these lessons, I- I'm, not, I'm not always interested in just giving just content, just what I really want to do, or just, I'm sorry, I'm not always interested in just giving application. 
I just want to teach the story and, and walk through it. It's really interesting. Can I go on a, a quick sidebar real quick? Part of my day job is to teach millennials. And, uh, and actually, millennials are about ready to phase out of what I do on any day in and day out basis. Anybody here under the age of 35? Okay, there you are. Millennials right there. It's really interesting. Uh, and, and we're going through this. And this is part of the reason why I like to teach this way. And it's part of why, why I enjoy just flat getting into the text and telling the story. Uh, when you guys are seeing this crew over here, under 35, uh, they're an interesting group. Uh, and I dig them. I've known them my whole life. It's all I've ever worked with. Uh, but they are considered the group that is the least likely to go to church of any generation. Interesting thing is when Mark... and I, Do we talk about this ever in here? Can I go on a tangent real quick? i got a lot of ground to cover, but this is just something that will be an interesting tangent. When Mark Christian stands on stage, uh, he'll be the first preacher in history... Uh, and not just Mark, but any preacher that stands on the stage, first preacher in history, first one ever, that has to preach to five generations in the same room. Never, ever happened before. Never happened. First time ever. He's got traditionalists, the greatest generation. He's got boomers in there. He's got Xers, like me. Okay. He's got millennials in there. Uh, and then he's got this new generation that they don't really know what to call them. They're going to call them Generation Y or... The always on or online generation, they're still trying to figure out. So, traditionalists, boomers, Xers, millennials, and then my daughter's generation. So, everybody from about 35 to 15 kind of fits that millennial criteria. And then <clears throat> there's a whole new generation underneath them. But part of the reason I love unpacking the text is this is a millennial generation, 35 to 15, walking away from church in droves. And, and, and they say that they're not spiritual. Um, in fact, they say a third of the generation, when you ask them what religion they are, they say none. They're, they're, not, they're not any religion whatsoever. And it's, it's not actually a, a really good representation of that generation because, honestly, um, they're highly, highly spiritual. But they get disillusioned sometimes with church. And it's interesting to, to, to know why. If you were to look at most millennials, why they walk away from church, the number one reason is because it's too shallow. Um, because a lot of times uh, it's, it's just like... Uh, almost pop psychology. It's, it's, it's fix-it faith. And they live in a world of Facebook and BuzzFeed where there's always five points to better you, and the last they want to do is reduce spirituality down to a BuzzFeed, you know, a BuzzFeed thread. And you know, some of you know what a BuzzFeed, three, BuzzFeed thread is. Others are like, I have no idea what it is, what, what that is, or a Facebook you know, post, and, and they don't want to reduce spirituality down to that. Um, the other thing is that a lot of times in the millennial generations with a traditionalist, uh, with, that, with somebody who lived in that greatest generation, we got some of you guys that, that probably came from that generation. One thing they did that was absolutely beautiful is they were loyal to churches. And when they locked in on a church, they stayed there. And they fought wars, they fought depressions, they, they lived through some very, very difficult times. And, and what they did is they brought in, after Johnny came marching over from war, uh, they had kids like, like nobody's business. Uh, that, that traditional generation flat got after it. And so you had a major agrarian society that came after that, but then they all moved to cities. Uh, all these boomers did. And boomers were very... Here's the point I want to make and why I teach the way I do. Boomers are very self-absorbed people. They're materialistic. And what happened was you have all this pop psychology growing like crazy, like Dr. Phil and Oprah become mainstays, and everyone's going to them for advice, and you know it's five steps to a better you, and all of a sudden preachers start to have to do the same thing with, with the text, with the biblical text. So traditionalists, 
They knew the stories of Jonah. They knew the stories of Noah. They knew the stories. And they passed those down to boomers. But boomers didn't pass that down to the next generation. They didn't pass down the oral tradition. Uh, they didn't pass it down in terms of telling the stories of the Bible. And so a lot of times when a guy like Mark has got to stand on stage and preach, sometimes a boomer traditionalist look at it and say, well, we already know that story. But for millennials, half the time you throw out stories of the Bible, they're like, I've never heard that story before. What are you talking about? We're going to get in one tonight that's going to address David's genitals for crying out loud. Weird text. They're like, what? Never heard that before. That's crazy. There's all kinds of, of things in here that they've never seen before. Never like, I don't know the story of that. Uh, and so even when I teach uh, from stages, I've always got to be careful about it. Like if I say Saul, some of you guys know there's two of them, an Old Testament Saul and a New Testament Saul. Oh, yeah, there's both. Millennials are like, I didn't even know there was one like, until we studied First Samuel. And that, I'm not saying all millennials are that way, just kind of typecasting. So part of what I, the reason I love teaching this way is I just want to teach people the text. You know, not worry about all the application. Let the Holy Spirit do that. I'm going to let you do that. But let's just learn the text and listen. Let's just let the story talk about itself. Does that make sense? So here we go. Um, that's why if you ever walk out going, uh, usually a boomer walks out of a service and goes, "What did I get out of it?" Uh, uh, however, millennial is going to walk out of it and go, "Man, did I learn anything?" Uh, and that's the difference. It's really interesting. What did I get out of it is going to be a boomer, uh, and the millennial is going to go, "You know, what did I learn from it?" And uh, it's just uh, because it's, they're the most knowledgeable generation in history. Uh, they get more access to knowledge than anyone else. Uh, and, and sometimes they just say, tell me the story of the Bible. So here we go. That's what we're going to do tonight. Ready? First Samuel, chapter 21. Uh, if you understand what's going on, uh, we wrapped up chapter 20 with David running for his life. Remember the whole concept? Shoots the arrow. Jonathan tells him Goodbye. You know, fires the arrow, the boy runs and gets it. Jonathan and David realize, man, you're in trouble. And David says, I'm out. I'm out. I'm running for my life because Saul, Jonathan's dad, is going to kill him. And man, he's already chunked the spear at him, what, two or three times now? Tried to kill him. Last thing you remember, who was the last person we saw Saul chunk a spear at? Anybody remember? Yeah, his own boy. Chunked a spear at his own son. Tried to kill his own boy. You know, and just the violent temper of what he calls Jonathan's mother is just vile. The tension between father and son right now. And, and David and Jonathan, they're only going to meet one more time in this entire text. And that's tonight. After that, they'll never see each other again. Uh, and really, that, that kindred moment is really, they're really pretty much separated from now on. These two really deep, deep abiding friends. So in chapter 1, so, so David went to Nob. And he says, to Himelech the priest. Um, I don't want to go into all the details, but I don't know why. When we first studied this book, and I know that some of you guys may remember, maybe you can pull it out uh, from memory. If you can, that's, that's kudos. You guys remember the priest we met at the very beginning, what his name was? First priest we met in this, in this entire book. Sorry, right, just guess. It's okay if you don't remember. Like, I think it might have been. I called him, fa- yeah, Fat. Yeah, Fat Eli, Okay. We talked about Eli. He had these two boys. Anybody remember their names? Hophni and Phinehas. Yeah, you guys are pulling those out. Hophni and Phinehas. And Eli, at that point, uh, it's not like it's something that we need to... We just want to ask, hmm, I wonder why. That's all we're asking. Anytime you read something in the text, it's kind of confusing. or like, huh, I wonder why. This is intriguing to me. And I'm not going to camp out in it. I know I usually get about one verse in and stop. And I'm doing the same thing right now. <laughs> David went to Nob and him like the priest. Uh, I wouldn't have never any other way. I do it every time. I just go, huh? I wonder why. Because why are they at Nob? I don't even know why. 
Because last time we see a priest, they were in Shiloh. And I don't know why they've relocated the priesthood. I don't, I don't know why. We know that, that Samuel's got his little prophet school, but that's different. Samuel's a prophet. These are priests. I don't know why these guys have moved. I kind of wish I knew the background on even that small little sentence. But that's the beauty of Scripture. We don't have time to unpack it. There's probably some great theologian out there that's figured it out. But I love the fact that you can read just five or six words at the beginning of a chapter, and all of a sudden it opens up this entire world of what the heck happened that made them move the entire tabernacle from Shiloh to Nob. Why do they do it? And I don't know. It says, Ahimelech trembled when he met him. And he asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? All right. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of a priest. Uh, one thing I, I want to have you guys learn to do in, in Scripture is use your imagination. Uh, use, you know, and, and not so much what does the Bible mean to you. The Bible means what it means. But I think there is a point of, man, here's what I see. Here's what captures my imagination. Be a Himalek. You're out there doing the things that priests are doing. You're hanging out in this place called Nob. All of a sudden, you know, you're, I don't know if he's working that day. I don't know what's happening. He can see this figure that's coming up in the distance. And all of a sudden, it walks up and it's David. He trembles. And he asks this question, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Use your imagination. Let yourself go wild. Just kind of dream about that for a second. Why, if you were Himalek, what's going on in your mind when David walks out? Huh? Okay. Yeah, you think, is he here to kill me? What else? Going to bring bad news? Good question. What else you see? Just be a bit of Sherlock Holmes right now. Okay? I mean, uh, let me stretch the illustration too far. Um, we know that David has been anointed king. We don't know whether Himalek knows that or not. If all of a sudden, Barack Obama walked in this room and sat down, what would go through your mind? Now, careful. What? I see somebody like, ah, people are buckling. Let's go right now. R- remove your opinion of his political office. If the President of the United States walked in alone and sat down in this room, what would you think? Huh? Yeah, why are you alone? What else are you thinking? Huh? Yeah, where's your entourage? Where's your security? If all of a sudden you saw him walking down the road by himself, would you be alarmed if you saw the President of the United States alone by himself walking down the road? Regardless of how you feel about him personally, I can tell you I would be alarmed. David is equivalent of a, of, a, of a serious general in Saul's army. When he shows up alone, right now this priest is like, uh-oh, uh-oh. I mean, there's no Twitter right now. There's no Facebook posts. There's no text messages. There's no, uh, what do they call little things come to the TV, the uh, national alert thing, system that gets tested, you know. Yeah, the public service announcement. There's nothing like that that would have alerted this priest that something was wrong. And all of a sudden, you see one of the key generals who would have gone everywhere. He led a thousand plus men into battle. And all of a sudden, he's showing up by himself. You're like, uh, what, what is going on right now? And I think that's what Himmelich's doing. He's like, this isn't right. Something's not right here. This guy should not be by himself. Why is a general showing up at my house by himself? Where's his entourage? It goes on, it says, David answered him like the priest. He says, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one's to know anyone, anything about your mission or your instructions. As for my men, I've told them to meet me at a certain place. Uh, now then, what do you have on? Okay, let's just stop right there. Tell me straight up. 
I can spin this all day long, and I'm not going to. What did David just do? He lied. I read so many commentaries about this. Well, you know, David could have been referring to Yahweh as king. I'm like, that's baloney. That's bull. Because you can tell how the way Ahimelech responds here in just a second. Even the way Ahimelech responds infers that he thinks he's talking about Saul. If that's somebody he's talking about, then David had an ample opportunity coming up to clarify that, and he doesn't do it. He goes, uh, he says, do you have anything on, uh, you know, anything for me? Uh, my, my, my. He says, uh, do you have anything on hand? Uh, give me the five loaves of bread and whatever you can find. All right, these five loaves of bread, it's called showbread. And, and what they would do is they would set this out before, you know, the, the, the altar. And it would remain there for a period of time. Uh, as just a, a sacrifice before God. They, they would, it would just stay there. We could go into showbread and all that kind of stuff, but I, I've got so much ground I've got to cover. And too, much, too much time talking about millennials. This bread would have been there, and David would have known. He would have known when he went there. So he left. I, I picture David. He leaves with the clothes on his back. He doesn't go back to see his wife. He doesn't go back to see. He walks away from his best friend and literally turns and is gone. Distance-wise, it's about uh, about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem. So it's not like he's gone so far that he's in trouble. But one thing we do know is that for a couple of days, that whole New Moon Festival, that two-day festival, remember that we talked about the last week? David's been in hiding for two days. We could draw conclusions that David's not had any food in a couple of days. Uh, we don't know where he's been hiding, what he's been doing, but it's probably been a couple of days since he's had food. I don't know how long it's been since he's had water, but he's hungry. He walks a mile and a half. He knows when he goes to this place, the showbread will be at the temple. He knows it will be there. And he shows up, that was meant for God, meant for the priest, was not meant for David. He shows up and he says, man, I know there's five loaves of bread here, I, I want them. They're not meant for him. Uh, when I was a little kid, man, true confessions right now. True confessions, I know Jesus has forgiven me. My, oh man, I hope my parents don't listen to this because I'm still nervous. I'm breaking out of sweat. I've never told this story publicly. Uh, golly, I feel so guilty. Jesus, this is, I know. I need I need like the pillow of confession right now because uh, I'm about to tell a story I've never told publicly in my life, um, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> when we were kids, me and about three other kids, uh, our parents would like were, were volunteers of the church, and no matter what, we were always the last people to ever leave this building. It seemed like I mean, like literally, it's lunchtime, and I'm like, can we leave? And I can't. I have to publicly confess that when my mom would clean up the communion that there would be times when the extra stuff that was left would be eaten by me and a couple other boys. And I feel so bad to this day. I've never admitted that. I'm like, it's not like it's, you know, I just would just like, we grab the extras and chow down on them. And then I was like, I'm going to go to hell for this. God's going to punish me. I won't get to go to heaven. I ate the extra communion bread. I'm going to hell. But man, I'm hungry. Oh gosh, why did I tell that story? Now I feel terrible. Uh, but David shows up. And, uh, and it, this is way more than just eating communion bread. I mean, this is consecrated, set-apart, specialty bread right now. Uh, and he goes on, he says, the priest uh, answered David, he says, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. All right, here we go. And we're going to get into some weird stuff here. <laughs> there's no men with David at this point. Uh, David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whatever I set out. The men's things are holy. Now, you know exactly what he's getting at there. He's talking about his genitals. Let's don't try to make this text down any better. I love, again, the fact that the Bible just tells it like it is. What a, 
What a crazy, crazy story. In fact, this even makes it into Scripture. It's just mind-boggling to me. It's, it's what just, again, I think Scripture's like, you told the story about David's things. Like, David says this out loud. Um, he says, the man's things are holy, uh, even on missions uh, that are not holy. Uh, how much so more, so more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of presence uh, that they removed for the Lord. Uh, and was replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. I say so. Jesus uh, later on will tell and, and affer, refer to this story. We'll talk about it here in a second. Um, so, so basically, I don't understand the context. I don't understand the full Levitical code. But there's something that whenever a man had had intercourse with a woman. Uh, I don't know if it's the exchange of body fluid, if it's semen, or what it is, but for some reason, for a period of time, you weren't going to be able to go into the temple. You, you wouldn't be able to do this. And so th- there's a troubling statement in here that I don't like. I don't really know what to do with. Uh, it, it's just interesting. He says, the men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. That little sentence are like, huh. huh. I don't know what to do with that little line in there. Don't know what to do with that one. That, that is one that all day has just been kind of mulling around in the back of my mind. David, what did you mean by that? The men's things are holy. Their genitals are holy, even on missions. Are, maybe he's saying that they're holy. Even when you go on missions aren't holy, they stay clean. I'm hoping that's exactly what that means. That's going to be my interpretation of it. But it makes you go, okay, that's kind of weird. Anyway, uh, he goes on, he says, uh, um, oh, so basically he gives them this bread. Jesus uh, dives in um, to this whole issue. If you look at the Bible, look over to Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So we look at David and we automatically think, you lied, you shouldn't have taken this, you shouldn't have done it. Um, Matthew 12, sorry, I'm trying to turn there. Get your Bibles, look at Matthew chapter 12, 1 through 4. I'd almost forgotten that Jesus tells a story. Uh, chapter 12, 1 says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, like David was hungry. And they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Okay, so they're saying, on the Sabbath, if you don't remember, uh, the, the whole concept of a Sabbath, on that day was a day of rest. You weren't supposed to really do much of anything. And uh, it, you know, if you were going to eat, it needed to be prepared beforehand. You weren't supposed to work that day. It was a holy day. We, especially as Americans, don't have any concept of a Sabbath. Uh, we work all the time. But it was really supposed to be a, a beautiful set-apart day. And it'd probably be a, an amazing thing for us to learn to do again because I'm sure there's some very great principles that come from it. Uh, but anyway, they eat, grain, they, they eat some grain. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, uh, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate uh, that day, and yet are in- innocent. Um, I tell you, uh, well, we can quit reading. We don't need to read the whole section. The, the bigger issue that Jesus is getting at is that obeying the letter of the law to the expense of man is not what God's intent is here. And, and he looks at it and says, wait a second. The disciples need food. We're not going to sit here and watch them die from starvation. Not that they necessarily would have died of starvation over some law. The, the, the law is not, not intended, the law is intended to protect. And right now, this issue is, is thwarting. You know, 
really what, what, what mankind needs. For David in the same way. Like, yes, the needs of him as a man are more important than, than the letter of the law right now. Um, which verse 7 say? I would turn back. Read it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it means. Exactly what it means. Um, you know, let's look at it this way. Um, you are driving by a house, and you see that that house is on fire. And you walk up to that house, you look through the window, and you see somebody on the floor that is passed out from asphyxiation. So you walk up to that door, and you kick it down, or you kick it in, and you go in and you drag that person out. Now, by the letter of the law, what have you just done? Yeah, breaking and entering is what you've done. You've just done breaking and entering. So the issue is, yes, we should never do breaking and entering. Well, never is a little bit of an exaggeration. Sometimes it's actually appropriate. Sometimes in order to, to take care of another human being, a law's got to be broken in order for somebody else to be saved. And in this case, Jesus is saying, man, listen, you don't understand the intent here. You don't understand what I'm getting at. I want obedience over sacrifice you know, what I'm looking at right now from, from David is this is a guy that needs food. He's got a couple of days without it. He's got a long journey ahead of him. And God says, the food and taking care of David is more important right now than obeying the Levitical code. Does that make sense? All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, uh, I lost my spot here. So, David replied, well, I already read that. He <clears throat> said, now one of Saul's servants that were there that day detained before the Lord. Uh, he was Doeg. We're going to call him Dirty Doeg. Just call him that from now on. The Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. Uh, Doeg is one bad man. Uh, he, he is nothing uh, but trouble. Uh, the Edomites, even themselves, are trouble. Uh, we've had nothing but problems with them uh, in Scripture. Uh, and man, Doeg's one of those people. David asked Himelech, he says, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? Rhetorical question, setting this guy up for failure. David knows exactly what he's got there. That's why he went there. He went there for bread, and he went there for this. He says, I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. The priest replied, and I can't imagine. Here you've got David sitting there. If you think David and you think sword, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? First thing you think of. Huh? Okay, let me kill you. What else comes to your mind? When you think of a very, a very specific sword. Go back to the one. I wouldn't necessarily be the last time. Uh, maybe it might have been. Yeah, I'm trying to think if that might have been the last time we heard. No, because we've, we've heard stories of David killing the Philistines and all that but with, with a sword. But you remember he, when he kills Goliath, what does he do? Yeah, cuts off his head, takes a head, takes his sword and armor, and puts his sword and armor in his tent. So evidently, this sword that we're going to read about right now, look whose sword it is. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine whom you killed in the Valley of Elah, like he needs to tell him that, is here. Uh, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. That ephod's a holy garment. I, I, I look at this as almost be like a national relic, that they've wrapped this thing up, you know, in, in an ephod. You know, it's, you know, yeah, it, it's a big deal. He says, it's wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. Uh, you know, there's no sword here but that one. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. That's a big old sword, folks. It's a big old sword. Uh, and you can imagine, that's a well-known sword. Uh, the person that owned that was a champion. The person that owned that was vicious. The person that owned that was a conqueror. 
And that is a sword that you would have known. Everybody knows that one. That's a, it, I mean, it's, it's one that will get your attention. Watch this. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Anybody see it? Okay. He goes to Gath with a sword. Flip back to chapter 17 with me. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 17. I've got to find it here. 1 Samuel 17. Uh, I should have looked at this. Uh, would you guys all read, somebody read out loud real quick, real quick, chapter 17, verse 4, about Goliath. Somebody read that out loud real quick. Did you see it? Read it one more time. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Real quick, whose sword does he have? Where's Goliath from? Now let's go back to chapter 21 and read verse 10. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Where did David just go? Where is David? Yeah. Whose hometown is it? He just went to Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword, for crying out loud. Are you kidding me? I cannot imagine. I mean, it's not like you can, it's not like a little dagger you can kind of hide underneath a cloth or something like that. He's walking into Gath. We know that Goliath has got four big brothers. We know that they slaughtered the Philistines. Remember the whole thing? Saul has slain, you know, his thousands, and David is. Who is he slaying in all that time? Yeah. What was Goliath? Philistine. Gath is a what kind of town? It's a Philistine town. It's a Philistine town. I'm like, David, are you kidding me? You're walking in to Gath, the hometown of the champion. With the champion's sword, for crying out loud, are you stupid? They wouldn't expect it. They wouldn't expect it, but I mean, that's like your arch enemy. Like, it's like, if he was still alive, that's like Bin Laden showing up in D.C. going, I'm here. I mean, are you, what are you doing? Are you crazy? I mean, you just wouldn't do that. You just, what are you thinking right now? I guess, man. And, or, or the old concept if you say, the enemy of your enemy is your what? Heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, you've heard that? Okay, that guy's my enemy, and he's your enemy, so we better be allies. I think David goes there and like, I think the one place that Saul's not going to go is Gath. He didn't want to go there. I, I, I mean, David's sitting there, he's got some five loaves of bread and a sword. Where am I going to go? I got nowhere to go. He can't go home. We know what Saul already tried to do to his own son. Do you think he's going to do anything else less to Jesse and David's other brothers? He'll kill them. Can't go home. Where'd I go? So his this rocket scientist at this point says, I'm going to go to the champion's hometown. Bad idea. Moving on. He says, But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Oh, they know the song. They know the song. And can you imagine the vindictive look in their eyes when it says Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands? 
Um, who are they talking about David slaying? Their own, themselves. Like, oh yeah, we know your song, boy. Walk in here with Goliath's sword. We know your song. Yeah, you're the guy that's slain thousands, if not ten thousands of us. You know, not literally that many, myriads. Yeah, you're the you're the guy that slaughtered our people. Yeah, we know you. You're the one that killed our, our you know our champion. I almost picture Goliath's four brothers just standing in the background, going, "Let me at him. Let me at him. I'll take him." Goes on. Um, I, I don't know why he went there. He yeah, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, so it goes on, it says, David took the word to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of, the, king of Gath. Yeah, and he's, he's terrified. Uh, so he basically, at this point, pretends to be completely insane. He just, he just basically acts like a complete idiot. Um, it says, uh, you know, it says, so he pretended to be insane while in their presence, while he was in their hands. Uh, what that really means is he's in their custody. So they've arrested him, they've got him, he is captured, and he realizes, oh my word, I'm here with Goliath's sword in Goliath's hometown, and these people, I'm surrounded. What, this is not working out the way I wanted it to. And so it says, uh, you know, he acted like a man making marks on the doors of the gate. Uh, there's a lot of opinions on what making marks on the doors of the gate means. I've heard everything from... Uh, he was wiping, you know, fecal matter on it, uh, to peeing on it. He basically does whatever. I've heard all kinds of commentators say what he was doing, or he was writing weird things. But basically, he he acts as he is a complete madman. Uh, it says that uh, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So he's basically now foaming at the mouth and just forcing himself to just look utterly, completely insane. It says, Achish said to servants, look at the man, he's insane, why bring him to me? Is, am, I, am I so short a madman that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Um, we're going to look at a couple of scriptures real quick. Uh, look at your Bibles, look at, at Psalm 56. Let's turn there real quick. Because I was doing a really bad job at walking you through some of the correlating things that David wrote about this time. We're going to look at two tonight. Uh, Psalm 56. Um, it says, for the director of music, to the tune of a dove on distant oaks. I have no idea what that is. Uh, it says, when the Philistines had seized him in Gath. So one of the things it's cool to do is to understand that some of these psalms are what David writes in the midst of his trouble. He says, be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. My, uh, my slanders pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I'm afraid, I understand. When he says I'm afraid, that's because he's terrified right now. He thinks, oh my word, what have I done? I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can a mortal man, that's Achish, what can a mortal man do to me? You can keep reading that. The other psalm you can check out if you want to look at it later on. Uh, you can look at, like I said, look at Psalm 56. Uh, the other which we don't have time to look at in detail is Psalm 34. Uh, is, is a great one to look at. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's right on his... Is it verse... Let me look at verse 13. Oh, he talks about... He says, in verse 13 of, of chapter 56, he says, uh, For you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling. May I walk before the God in the light of life. So when he escapes, those are some of the words he's, he's, uh, that he's going to state. Um, where's the other one to look at? 
So I think one thing it's worth remembering is that David writes Psalm 34. Let's go ahead and look at a little bit of Psalm 34. Flip over there real quick. There's a couple of verses I want, to, I want to point out. Psalm 34, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. Uh, he says this, uh, And again, uh, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, it's actually Achish, who drove him away and he left. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. You see it? What was he doing? What's he talking about there? How was David acting insane? Talk to me about his beard. He's spitting all over himself. He's embarrassed. He's foaming at the mouth. This is the... Yeah. This is the future king of Israel. This is the future king of Israel acting like he is utterly out of his mind. Like he's got rabies or something. You know, I love the commentator that says he may have been covering himself in his own fecal matter. I mean, he's... You, you have to understand, it's so bad that Achish doesn't even want to be around him. He stinks. He's losing his mind. Just get him out of here. Some of are like, why did they just kill him? Heard a lot of different uh, comments on that. Uh, some people would have believed that it was bad luck to kill someone who was insane. That uh, you just didn't do that. It wouldn't, would have been, wouldn't have been appropriate. Uh, I don't really know why they didn't kill him. Is what one commentator said. Keep reading. He says, "This poor man." Huh? Yeah, or maybe that point. Oh, they know who he is. But maybe they think that, like, look at this guy defecating on himself. Look at the spit all over him. Look at him. He's a complete mess. You know, it might even be something like, we don't know what he's got, but let's get him out of here before it infects our entire city. You know, they may look like, like, there's no way this guy would have come here in his right mind. There's something wrong with him. We need to get him out of here. Uh, He's not right in the head. You know, whether they would have thought that was contagious, whether that was a bad omen to kill him. For some reason, this king is like, I don't want any part of what he's got in my town. Get him out. Run him out of here. Get him out of town. He goes on in, in, in chapter 34, and he says, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Uh, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. Lions may grow, may grow weak. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Over a couple of the verses, I look at you, uh, verse 15, I like that too. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. You know, we've heard those verses before, and, and I guess it gets to that point where if you found yourself in a bad place, how much would you be willing to show humility to escape? You know, what, what, it, whether you look at that physically like David or even spiritually in your own life, like, man, I found myself where if, if I don't get away from this thing that wants to rule over me, like Achish, if I don't get away from this king that wants to take over my life, I don't care if I've got to drool, if I've got to make a fool of myself, whatever I've got to do to get out of the situation, I'm going to do it. it. You know, because you realize... In that moment, I said I'm going to go to application, but I'm going to go there just a little bit. There comes that moment where that sin leads to death. You know, you know, Romans 6 is very clear about that. You know, the wages of sin are death. The gift of God is eternal life. And I think what David realized is like, man, I've got myself in a really bad place. And there's no pride that's going to get me out of this. All I can do is beg God 
and act as whatever I got to do to get out of the situation. He'll completely humble himself, do whatever he's got to do to get away. Um, even at the point of pleading his own ignorance. Verse 22 says, The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. So he leaves there. He goes this, uh, to this place called Adullam. Uh, that just means like a refuge or closed in place. Um, it's right outside of where David kills Goliath. Uh, it's about 10 miles kind of east, southeast of Gath. So he leaves Gath, you know, I don't know what he's got now to eat. But you can kind of tell this guy's on the run. He's run to Nob. He's run to Gath. Now he's run to this place where there's a ton of caves. Uh, let's look at this. It says, uh, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, uh, they went down with him to be there. Okay, I think it's very clear, very simple. Why do you, we can get into details. I think the reason why is, is it, the reason why Jesse and all the kids and all the family go to Adullam is because they're not safe. Saul will kill them. And he's already threatened to kill his own boy, tried to kill Jonathan, and David is the only outlet they've got for safety. This is a really interesting text right here. Check this out. It says, uh, he says, they heard about it, they went down to him. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. What a worthless group of people. <laughs> I mean... You're like the future king of Israel, and you have everyone that's in debt, which means they're running from their debtors. It's like, okay, wow, all right, you're really honorable. You're not going to pay the money back. Uh, wow, you know, discontent, you know, distress, and he became their leader. About 400 men were there with him. I find it interesting that David's first real gathering, after he leaves Saul, Saul gives him the mantle of leadership and leaves thousands. But the moment he leaves Jonathan, I don't think he's got anybody until this point. Because he's got nobody to help him in Gath. Unless, there, unless maybe there are some guys. and they, He does have a group of men that are with him. But I, I don't see anything in the text that makes me think that. Um, what I think is that now he's starting to get a following. It's 400 guys that were perceived by the world standards as losers. His first group of real leaders by the world standards, are absolute losers. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus. Bunch of fishermen, terrorists, and tax collectors. Really? That's your first crew, Jesus. The people who rally to you, prostitutes and sinners, are who come and rally to Jesus. All the, the people in respected in society... You know, the uppity-ups, they don't really, other than maybe Nicodemus who meets him at night, most of the people that are, you know, leaders don't really have anything to do with Jesus. He runs with a ragtag group. And a lot of us, we get uncomfortable looking at that side of Jesus. You know, he was accused of being a friend of tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Like, well, you know, he didn't really condone what they did. He, listen, he would have, the only way those people are going to consider you friend is if you laugh with them, you do life with them, and you love them. And Jesus did that. I don't think he ever got into the sin they were into, but Jesus knew how to be with really messed up people and love them to the point where they liked being around him. You know, it's interesting to me that most broken, wicked people don't like to be around most Christians. But it's really interesting to me that broken, wicked people love to be around Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Man, I wonder what it was about him that prostitutes knew that he didn't want their business, but they truly enjoyed his company. It's interesting. Yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful thing about his love for people. 
And in this moment, the distressed, the people in debt, the discontent, these are the, as a leader, these are not the people you want, these aren't the kind of people I hire where I work. I'm like, let me see, there's a heavy debt, you're discontent, you know, you're, you're disillusioned. Yeah, you're in a great distress, you got the job. You know, David brings these people in and they rally to him. And I think they see something in, G, in David that's very similar to what sinners saw in Jesus. They see a great heart. I think it's a heart that's truly after God. And I think there's something beautiful about David that draws them in. We know that the soldiers love David. We know that they adored David. You know, we know that it liked him. I think there's something very beautiful. When it says that the Spirit of God was on David, I think some of the most beautiful things that we think about, we think the Spirit of God being on us, were also in David. And when these people came to him, they found an oasis in the middle of these caves. And there's big caves around this area that easily could have fit 400 people. There's multiple caves. They're all over. Don't think... Well, we guys, you live in Missouri. We understand the concept of a big cave. They're here. All right, keep moving on. Sorry. Um, David will describe, he describes his time in that cave. If you want to write this down, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Those are the Psalms where he talks about his cave wandering years. That's cave time. Psalm 57, Psalm 142. Um, so he's in this cave for a while. It goes on, it says, he became their leader, 400 men are there. Uh, from there he goes to Mizpah, Moab. Um, it says to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? All right, if you're not a student of biblical history, this is really, really cool. Anybody here know who David's grandma is? Yes. Okay, let's, let's look over at your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ruth. Just go backwards. Backwards a book. Okay, Ruth, and we're going to look at chapter 2. Alright, chapter 2, you with me, Ruth? Just back one book there. Or two books, sorry, I said one, it's two. No, it's one. I'm wrong, it's one, because I got judges the other way. Ruth 2, verse 2. And Ruth, David's great-grandma, or David's grandma, the Moabitess, said to Naomi. Did you see it? What is Ruth? She's a Moabite. What David does here is brilliant. And again, I just want to teach you the story. Because sometimes you'll fly over these sentences and not understand like, Oh, I see what you're doing there. I see what you're doing there. David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed there with him as long as David was in the stronghold. So David realized it's not safe for mom and dad. They're getting older. They can't hang out in the cave. And he needs a safe place to put mom and dad where they can't be killed. So he knows, hey man, I'm part Moabite. You know, he looks at his mom and dad and he realizes my bloodline goes back to Ruth. And Ruth's a Moabite. I, I can go back to my kinfolk and say, listen, they can't stay in the cave with me. i got a bunch of back, jacked up guys I'm standing with. They don't need to be around them. Saul's trying to kill me. We're sleeping in darkness every night. It's cold. Can my mom and dad stay with you? King Moab's like, yep, you're related to us. Come on in. Brilliant thing that David does there to take care of his mom and dad. Uh, I don't know. I, like I said, I get geeked out of the small stuff. I think it's cool. It says, but the prophet Gad, we don't know a whole lot about the prophet Gad. Uh, we really don't. There, there's not a ton of information. 
Um, we know, if you get your Bibles, look at 2 Samuel. Turn to 2 Samuel. We know a little bit about this guy, but not a lot. I kind of wish I knew more about him. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. Okay, 23. Real quick, what is 23? So you guys get your Bibles, it opens up with a sentence, with, with a tag above it. In chapter, 2 Samuel 23, what's the little tag above it? Last words of David. Flip over to chapter 24. And uh, we're going to look at 24 verse 11. It says this, Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord came to Gad the prophet David's seer. In other words, this guy Gad is with David all the way through. He's with him a long time. I wish we knew more about him. Samuel, as prophet, really has been decreased pretty significantly in David's life. I don't know a ton about Gad. I could probably do a lot of study on him. But I didn't want to just pass over his name like he's no big deal because he's with David in the cave and he'll be with David at the very end. I just think that's kind of neat. That we don't know a lot about this guy, but he's with David all the way. It's just kind of a cool nugget that I found. Um, So he goes back in the stronghold. uh, And so David left, and now he goes to the forest. So he's been to the desert. He's been to the caves. Now he's going to the forest. Uh, You know, Saul hears that David's uh, and his men have been discovered. And Saul, with spear in hand, was seated under the Tarmus tree, the hill in Gibeah. Uh, Last time we saw him sitting underneath the tree in, in Gibeah, was when he was whining about the Philistines and Jonathan, his boy, had to go kick tail, take names. Uh, he said, Saul said to the men that were with him, he said, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? All right, this gets really, really, really intriguing right now. Um, let me find that. Where are my notes on that? Oh, Jesus, let me find that. Crud. This is where I get really frustrated. I don't remember this. Oh, Jesus, help me where that's at. I can't remember where it's at. Oh, there. Found it. Found it, found it, found it. Okay, here we go. Watch what he does here. This is interesting to me. He says, uh, he, he says, listen to me, you know, you men of Benjamin. Where's he, where's he from? What's his, home t- what's his home tribe? Saul's. Benjamin. So he's surrounded by his own people. Okay? He's not surrounded by just a bunch of Israelites. He's just got his clan sitting around him. Uh, and he says, uh, he says, well, this son of Jesse... Uh, give all of you fields and vineyards. Uh, will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Uh, is, that now, is that why you now all conspired against me? All right, let's stop for just a second. I know we've covered a lot of chapters. I know we've talked about it a lot. And it's not you can remember anything. But does that phrase echo anything in your mind? Anything you can pull from and like, I don't know why, but that sticks with me. I heard that before. Okay. Conspiring? Yes, when he sends him to do that. I read too far. The part that I want to stop with, and I said, listen to Benjamin, the son of Je- will the son of Jesse give you all you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Does that remind you of anyone? Yeah, 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 you're getting there. Yeah. You got it. Chapter 8, look over it real quick. We're going to see Samuel's prophecy play out right now in front of our own eyes. Look over at uh, uh, 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. We'll read just a few verses here. We don't need to read a ton. We're just going to read four verses. 
1 Samuel 8, uh, we'll start with uh, verse 10. Samuel told all these words. This is when the people want a king, and Samuel says, Man, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And it says, Samuel told all the people, all the words of the Lord uh, to the people that were asking him to be king. And he said, This is what the king uh, who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons uh, and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They'll run out in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Others to plow his ground, reap his harvest, to others to make weapons of war uh, and for equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, your, you know, your vineyards, your olive groves. Give them to his attendants. It goes on and on. And now you've got Saul saying some of the very words that Samuel said almost word for word. Like flat out. This thing's a train wreck. Moving on. And he says, uh, Is this why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. Still some vindictive stuff between dad and, dad and son right now. Dad and boy are not doing well. I don't know exactly where Jonathan is. We will see him show up in just a minute. But Doeg the Edomite, dirty Doeg, uh, who was standing with Saul's official, says, I saw the son of Jesse. They wouldn't even say his name. You know, come to Himelech, son of Hiatub at Nob. And Himelech inquired of the Lord. He says, he gave the provisions. He gave the sword of Goliath. Uh, the king sent for the priest. Sends him there. He sends for his father's whole family. I'm trying to fast through this. Uh, Saul says to this guy, he says, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to them, Why have you conspired against me? Okay, did, did, did he have any indication there was a problem, this priest? So the very priest, that very opening story we got into, when David shows up and says, I want bread and a sword. Did that guy have any inkling that there was anything wrong? He doesn't know there's a problem. He's working. General shows up, asks for bread and a sword. You give him bread and a sword. I mean, you do what the general says. General David is here. He wants bread and a sword. He's like, so, you know, this guy, Saul sends for the priest. The priest shows up. And this guy, Saul just starts going at him. You know, you can imagine this guy, his colon begins to tighten. When in verse 13 he says, why have you conspired against me? And all of a sudden, like, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a meeting that's gone south quick. Yeah, that's this meeting. This guy's like, ooh, whoa. I thought maybe you wanted, like, the human and thumb thing. I thought we were going to, like, gonna, like, Talk to God or something. Like, uh, we got a problem here, don't we? Like, you got a big problem. And he says, You gave him the bread and the sword and inquiring of God for him. So he's rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king. He said, Who of all your servants is as loyal to David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant, nor any of his father's family. So he's starting to pick up, like, because Saul sent for his whole family, not just him. And all of a sudden he realizes, oh no. You can imagine this guy, his whole family. Like, we're not talking just a few of his family. Josephus is going to say 385 members of his family. Like, when they send for the family, it's like the Italian family. Like, you bring out the family. And so this guy shows up with all the priests. He shows up with all their wives, all their kids. I mean, it's like... It's like the family reunion gone bad, and they can hear Ahimelech is getting ringed by the king. And all of a sudden, Ahimelech realizes, like, oh no, my whole family's with me. And this guy's a lunatic. Keeps going on. He says, but Ahimelech, but, but, uh, he says, but the king said, he says, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's whole family. Bad deal. Real bad deal. 
He says, And the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell him. Now this is interesting. Check this next verse out. But the king's, the king's officials were not willing to raise a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Can you imagine the tension? Let the movie scene play out of your minds. Saul's like, kill him! And they're all just standing there. They're just looking at each other. They're waiting on one guy to make a move, and no one will budge. All these Israelite men are like, we, we don't know what to do right now. We're, we're not going to kill the priest. These are the priests of God. I hate to even go here. First of all, why are we in this situation? What, what's brought us to this spot? Remember? What, what? Israelites, but, but who lied? Yeah, we're here because of David. We're here because of David lying. And we got 300, 400 people all standing here right now, getting screamed at, swords are told to draw. You can picture moms right now grabbing their babies, surrounded by the army, and you get soldiers right now, you can imagine the commotion, the stirring, or maybe just the, the shaking that these guys are having right now, and no one's moving, no one's budging, no one's grabbing their sword. The king is yelling, kill him! Kill him! God did promise Eli that none of his children, none of his relatives, would ever be seen to be priests. It's about to go down right now. That whole thing that God said to Eli is going to happen is about to happen right here, right now. Remember that back in like 2 Samuel I don't know, like 7 or so, 4, somewhere around there? I can't remember. And it says, uh, but the king's officials wouldn't raise a hand. The king ordered Doeg. Okay, Doeg is a Gentile. The rest of them are Israelites. Now if you remember, Saul got told to wipe out a Gentile town, and he didn't do it. Alright? That's part of why he didn't... He and it's not like the only time he wouldn't obey God, but he wouldn't do what God said. And so, the Israelite wouldn't wipe out the Gentile, and now you're going to watch a Gentile slaughter, obliterate a whole slew of Israelites while the king stands there and watches. Dirty, stinking Doeg. The king turned to Doeg. You turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. It's not just the men he killed. He goes on. He also put to the, uh, put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men, its women, its children, and infants, its cattle, its donkeys, and sheep. That sounds a lot like Saul was supposed to do to the Amalekites, and he didn't do it. So here we are, Doeg. Josephus and the Septuagint put that number at about 385 people he slaughtered that day. This guy just goes through. He's a guy that when David, remember who he is, he's there when David asks for the bread and gets a sword. Dirty Doeg's there. He hears it all go down. I don't know if he understands what he's hearing. He probably knows there's tension between, he's a chief shepherd, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. It's not like he's a high-ranking profile. He's chief of the sheep, chief of the cattle. You know, I don't know that he's necessarily in the inner circle of Saul. He moves in the inner circle right now. He goes on, he says, But Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, he said he escaped and he fled. One guy gets away. One gets away. He says he told David uh, that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, That day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew 
he would be uh, he would be sure to tell Saul. He says, "I'm responsible for the death of your father's whole family." I can't imagine the pain that those families felt. I can't imagine the guilt that David feels. If you want to have a glimpse into David's guilt over this, uh, real quick. Oh man, I got so much to cover. Look at Psalm 52. Let's flip over there real quick. And again, read this stuff. This uh, you know later on tonight. Read it for your Devo time. He says, "This is written." Uh, Psalm 52, I was looking at the wrong one. He says, this is written when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and said, David's gone to the house of Ahimelech. So hopefully this is also not just giving you respect for 1 Samuel, hopefully it's giving you a new respect for the Psalms. Now that you kind of like, oh, whoa, 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 that Psalm goes with that story. And he says, why do you boast of evil, you mighty man? Why do you boast all day long? Who are you? You know, uh, you are uh, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God. Who's he talking about? Doeg. He says, your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You practice deceit. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word. Oh, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down uh, to everlasting ruin. He'll snatch you up and tear you from your tent. He'll uproot you from... The... Can you hear David's vengeance right now as he's writing this? He wants to rip Doeg's head off his shoulders right now. He hates Doeg. He wants to slaughter him. And he says, the righteous will see and fear. They'll laugh at him saying, he's now the man who did not make God a stronghold, but trusts his great wealth. He just keeps on going on. Just a great context when you compare those two texts. Um, let's, get, let's move a little bit more. We've got we to we solve, we've got to finish this up. So that's what happens. Chapter 23, we don't have time to cover it all. We're going to hit a few highlights here. Um, David again flees. Um, you know, Oh, I've got I to pick up this other verse, sorry. Chapter 23. So when David was told, look, uh, the Philistines are fighting, it's Keilah, and they're looting, and thresh, uh, looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Alright, so understand that right now, the Philistines are attacking an Israelite town. Now, Saul, just that chump just wiped out an Israelite town, for crying out loud. He just wiped out Nob. So the Israelite king won't even protect his own people from a Gentile. And David right now, who's not even king, but the interesting thing I don't want you to miss here, I almost forgot this, who is, we have one person get away at the very end of chapter 22. Who is it? One person gets away. Huh? Yeah, Abiathar? See that name at the very end? Was it Abiathar? What is it? Uh, um, Abiathar. He's the one guy who gets away. What is Abiathar? What's his role? He's a priest. Okay? Check this out. David's been anointed king, right? We know that. Samuel did that. Who's Gad? This guy I talked about just a minute ago that's hanging out with David. is with him all the way to his deathbed. Who's Gad? He's a prophet. Who's Abiathar? Huh? Priest. You now have consolidated in David the three official titles of Israel. The three big offices of Israel are now consolidated living in the caves with David. You have a prophet, you have a priest, and you have the king. Never again. Saul will never have a prophet again. He won't have the priest anymore because he's killed them all. Saul has now separated himself so big. And I know it's a small thing, but it's also a beautiful glimpse that here with David, he may be living, he may look like nothing, 
The, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay His head. Jesus wandering around and people understand they consolidated in that one man. Jesus represents in His own body, as Hebrews would say, as being pro- our prophet, our priest, our king is who He is. In the same way, here's David. Don't underestimate David. Because what he's got right now, and I think he's smart to realize it, I have a prophet named Gad, I have a priest named Abiathar, and I will be king. And it's all consolidated in him right here, right now. And so he begins acting like king. You're going to see one of the first times when David really moves in to a kingly type attitude. He rescues his own people who are being trashed by the, by the, by the Philistines. He said, the Lord answered him. He said, go and attack the Philistines and save Goliath. But David's men said to them, how many men does David have? 400 men is all he's got. David's men said to him, he says, hey, listen, man. And he says, uh, here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then? You know, we, can't, we, we don't even know we can send up to Saul. And you want to go fight the Philistines, David? Are you kidding me? Um, and he says, uh, once again, David inquired. So notice that. David inquires. Again, verse 4, David inquires of the Lord. The Lord answered him, go down to Calib, or uh, Kilah. He says, for him to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went down there. They fought the Philistines. They carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy loss on the Philistines, and they saved the people. Uh, now, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, uh, had brought the ephod uh, down with him. Now, understand, the writer's trying to make sure you understand that, that the priesthood is now with David. The priesthood's with David, and that's a big deal. Uh, so Saul pursues David. Saul was told uh, that David had gone down to the city. So David rescues this town. He rescues them from the Philistines who are trying to kill them. He shows up. His men show up. They inflict heavy losses. You know, they run the Philistines out. They rescue this town. Then check out what happens. And he says, uh, Saul was told that, uh, that David had gone to that town. Uh, God has handed him over to me. Uh, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. All right. Basically, all they're saying is there's only one way in and out of this town. He knows that David's in there. There's only one way in and one way out. You know, it's a town. It's a fortified city. David's rescued it. You know, he's taking care of the Philistines. And he says, Saul called up, to all, called up all of his forces of battle to go down to uh, Kilah and to besiege David as men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. So David said, O, God, o Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard, um, you know, uh, Definitely that Saul plans to come and destroy the town on account of me. We already know Saul's destroyed Nob. David thinks he's going to come here and kill all these people too. He's trying to act kingly right now. He's like, listen man, this is not going to work. Saul's going to come down and he's going to slaughter them all. I love David's heart as king for his people right now. He says, will the citizens of Achillah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, tell your servant again, he inquires. And the Lord said, he will. Alright, thank you God for letting him know. And David asked again, will the citizens surrender me and my men to the Lord? I mean, to, the, to Saul. And the Lord said, no, they will. <laughs> David's like, ah, crud. He's like, he's coming and they're going to turn me over. So David and his men, about 600 in number now, uh, they left Kailah and they kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David escaped uh, Kailah, uh, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert. Uh, he just keeps on going and going. He goes to this area, uh, Horesh, and he just keeps moving from place to place until he finally sees Jonathan in verse 16. And he says, and, and, uh, and Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. I love that. Now here's the deal. How does Jonathan find him and Saul can't? It's interesting. It's interesting. Jonathan tracks him down. I would imagine that 
Jonathan had a way to get word to David in the stronghold and said, hey man, Jonathan wants to talk to you. And he still trusted Jonathan. He had no reason not to. This will be their last meeting. This will be their last conversation. This will be their last time together. And it says this, it says, uh, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. Now understand, <laughs> he's not saying that his father doesn't want to lay a hand on him. Uh, he, he knows that Saul wants to kill him. He's just saying, he's not going to get you, man. He's not, I don't think he's advocating for his dad. Don't misread that. I think what he's saying is, God's with you, David. My, my, my dad's not going to get you. The Lord's with you. He goes on, he says, uh, My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, uh, and I will be second to you. He won't. Talk about that toward the end of the book. Even my father Saul knows this. The two men made a covenant before the Lord, and then Jonathan went home, but David remains there. Um, the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds? These people turn him over. Um, and he says, uh, he says, Now, O king, come down whenever it please you to do so, and we're responsible for handing him over to you, uh, to the king. Why do you think these people do this? Why do these people hand him over? What's your thoughts? Maybe money? Why would they be scared? Nob. I mean, you're sitting there. Let's say you got a few town elders. And word is out that Dirty Doeg slaughtered. If they're willing to kill priests, you think they're not willing to kill others? They've wiped out the priesthood as far as they know. How, how Abiathar escapes, like, I don't know if he's off using the bathroom or what. Somehow this one guy gets away and no one else does. I'm looking at this right now going... You probably got some town elders that are just saying, not worth it. We're not willing to let this madman come in here and kill our wives and our kids. Like for, for David, they don't know he's been anointed king. They got no idea. For this guy, we don't even know him. He's just hanging out in the desert out here. He's hanging out, you know. If Saul finds out that we know he's here and we don't hand him over, from their perspective, you can imagine you harboring a fugitive. It's like, it's not worth it, man. I'm not going to hide this person. And so they turned him over to Saul. And it says this, um, Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. <laughs> he says they were concerned for themselves. He says, Go out and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes, who's seen him there. Uh, they tell me he's very crafty. You know he's crafty and quick. He says, Find about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. And then I'll go with you. If he's in the area, I'll track him down uh, among all the clans of Judah. Uh, so they set out, uh, they went ahead of Saul. Uh, now David and his men were in the desert of Moan, uh, in the Arabah south of uh, well, this area. We don't need to get into that right now. Saul has begun to search. Uh, when David was told about it, he went down uh, to the rock and stayed in the desert of Moan. Uh, Saul heard about this. He went to the desert. Uh, and as Saul was going along one side of the mountain, David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. Can you imagine that? Whew. I wish we could see that movie. Wow, I mean, this is the moment where the tension, the music in the movie is heightening and your palms start to sweat and you're like, this is the thriller part of the music where you're like ducking your eyes, you're pulling your hair, you're like, oh my word, oh my word, oh my word. He's moving 600 men around, I mean, read it, so beautiful. He says, as David was going to one side of the mountain, as Saul was going on one side of the mountain, David and his men were on the other side. And I'm thinking David knows this right now. 
You know, or maybe he doesn't. I don't know. He says they were well, they had to do. He says they were hurrying to get away from Saul. Can you imagine? They've got swords. You know, hopefully, I'm hoping it's just the 600 men now, and it's not the families that have now joined up with them. Like they're trying to skirt this mountain at the same time, trying to watch their noise level, trying to do everything. That, I mean, it could have gone down like that. You can imagine the tension of that moment. Your heart is just. If I'm watching the movie right now, my heart is beating out of my chest. My palms are sweating. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you? This would be a great climax moment. And it says, as Saul and his force were closing on David and his men to capture him, a messenger came to Saul. Look at God's intervention. Come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. And then Saul broke off his pursuit of David, went to meet the Philistines. Uh, and it says, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. And we'll talk about En Gedi later on. I love, we're going to wrap up. This needs to be the end of where we stop tonight. I just love that tense moment of this cat and mouse game between Saul and David. You know, just as they're moving through the stealth, the quiet, you know, can they hear these guys? Saul's army on the other side, you know, they kind of know where they're at. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but even the way that God manipulates the Philistines to attack in order to distract Saul. What, what brilliance on God's part, the way that he bails out. And keep in mind, I don't want to lose this. We'll end with this. God's not just saving David. What is God saving? Jesus. The promise is in David. The prophecy is in David. The covenant comes from David. If David dies, the prophecy in Jesus is never filled. That's one of them, right? The, the, the miracles. When God says it's going to come through David, he has to fulfill his word. It's got to be true. It's got to be true. He can't all of a sudden go, well, David died. New prophecy. No. Once God speaks, he's got to honor his word. And so the thread that gets pulled all the way from Abraham all the way through a Gentile like Ruth all the way back to the people of God like David, all the way through until you reach this beautiful moment in the book of Matthew when Jesus is born. What it took to hold that promise together is divine. Absolutely divine. And one of this moment, God's, huh? It is the big picture. And in this moment when God is watching it going, that was a close one. <laughs> you know, and I don't understand the concept of free will and the way that everything works, the way it's all playing out and how, what Saul can decide to do and what, how God intervenes and God's like, ah, Philistines, go, go, go! And I don't know. I mean, God knows everything and He sees the way it's playing out, but I almost wonder if God's on the edge of His seat going, whoo, this is a good one. Whoa, move, David. Move, 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 move. You're going to get killed. And all of a sudden, I mean, I can't imagine the tension of that moment you know, as those guys kind of peek around, the mo- it gets real quiet. They look around, and Saul's boys are just, you know, kind of like Wild West, heading off on horseback. Not literally, but they're just gone. <laughs> Can you imagine the conversation around the fire that night for David's men? Like, man, we about got it tonight. How's a close one? <laughs> like, whoo, that's about as close. We dodged a bullet tonight, big time. I just love that story. I think it's just, it's just beautiful. And again, I just want God to have some sort of big screen. You know, where we can watch this thing play out. And we're like, all right, can we have David tell us a story of what happened? 
And then all of a sudden, can we watch it, God, tonight? You know, as you paint this story in the sky, like, all right, you can watch it. Tonight we're showing this episode. Join us. Tonight is episode 23 of 1 Samuel. <laughs> like, okay, here we go. This is a great story. And you guys are all this coming. You can like, we know it gets away. Don't be scared. So it's just a great story. Anyway, I hope you guys love this book. We've got two more weeks to wrap this thing up. And we got <laughs> we got a lot of chapters to get through. Uh, because there were no snow dates, um, we kind of got a little bit... It's a beautiful thing, but uh, one of the complications are everyone else ends on the 20th. We've actually got three weeks of stuff to cover, and we have to do it in two weeks. All right? So we got to make up some ground. And next week, I got asked clear back in January. I'm being here. I think maybe Chad Ragsdale or Insminger or maybe Isaac are going to be teaching next week because they asked me to preach to the students next week for the high school kids. And then I'll be back to wrap it up on the 20th. We got a ton of ground to cover. Hope you like the book. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. Glad you guys are here. All right, have a good night. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.